This week I had the opportunity to go away for a few days to my own, up into a little farm in Worcester. I stayed in a little cottage looking out over a mountain. Um, and there, spent some time just in prayer before the Father. It was just so beautiful. It's a, it's a habit I highly recommend trying sometimes, solitude and silence. Take your seats. And while I was there, um, one of the times I was just on my face before God asking Him to, something had been niggling me in my heart, something was bothering me. I mean, in that place, just of silence and being before Him and being undistracted from children and work and everything else, it just was an amazing time of actual repentance where before God He began to show me layer upon layer of, of quiet, if I can call it quiet arrogance that's grown inside of my heart and tracing it right back to probably when I was 20 years old, which if you don't know how old I am, that's like 17 years ago, almost 18 years ago. And he gave me this picture of, of like a ship with, um, that had been painted layer after layer of paint put upon this ship. And then the barnacles had stuck upon those layers and more and more barnacles and more seaweed and more junk had begun to stick on the ship. Or the other picture was like a, a person walking through a field. You know when you walk through a field that's full of briars? And the, you know briars, the stuff that sticks to your pants and you come out the other side, like what are those little black things, blackjacks? And you come out the other side and you spend like 15 days picking the blackjacks off your off your clothing, and he began to just really call me to repentance in my own heart, where just layer after layer of, of arrogance and gracelessness has come into my own heart. When I look at some of the ways I deal with my children, some of the ways I speak to my wife, some of the relational things that I have to go through, some of the, um, the, the, the work things, some of the judgments that we so quickly want to cast on others, and there's, there's a gracelessness which starts to come into our lives. And just the Spirit just breathing, saying it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And just knowing that the Father wants to come. Even this morning, I'm sharing it with you, because I know the Father wants to come, and just week by week, devotion by devotion, psalm by psalm, prayer by prayer, begin to strip off barnacles from our lives. Begin to strip off, and it feels like it's a word that's much, much deeper than just for me. He wants to come and take off Briar by briar by briar. And, and I had this sense in my heart that it's not, it's not just an instantaneous thing. It, it can do that. It can come and just clean you completely in a, in a moment. All those briars, all those things. But practically just feel like he, he's coming and he's picking them off each time we come before him. And it's a beautiful grace-filled thing. So I wonder if there's, I wonder if there's more of you fellow strugglers out here this morning. I wonder if there's some of you who, who feel when you look at the way you respond to certain things in your life, even little things, even a taxi cutting in front of you. Who do you think you are? And there's a high expectation in your heart. I wonder if some of the wives or the husbands in the room have felt this year after year after year from the person who loves us most closely, a gracelessness toward one another. A high bar, a high expectation. You, you should be this. You should do this. Why aren't you? Why don't you? From our parents, from our boss, towards our boss. So this morning I'm going to continue our DNA series and I've called what I'm going to speak on, speak on in search of grace. 
in search of grace. And we're going to turn, if you would, with me to John chapter 7. We're going to read one of the most dramatic and beautiful stories in the scriptures. And I want to give you a little bit of context because John chapter 7 starts off with Jesus hanging out in Galilee because the leaders and the Jewish rulers are trying to kill him. And so he leaves Jerusalem where they're trying to kill him. And he goes down and he begins to minister in Galilee. And there his brothers say to him, Jesus, it's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. If you know your Jewish feasts, this is the last one in the line of feasts. And it's the only one that's the big celebration. The, the Day of, of, of Atonement um, has, has already been. The Feast of Atonement has been. And that's an a, a inward focus, a repentance. It's that. And then this, the, the, the Feast of Booths is the celebration for the harvest. They actually would go into Jerusalem, people, thousands of people from all over the countryside, and they would build booths, build tents. That's why it's called the Feast of Booths with palm branches. And they'd bring their whole family, and for eight days they would camp there. It was like a giant party. It was like this beautiful camp out and everyone would come to the Feast of Booths. And all of it was around fruitfulness. It was around um, the fruit and thanking God for the harvest and then anticipating God bringing the harvest in. So the year to come. And there was this huge symbolism around water. Because for these people there was no pipelines and a tap that you just turn on. If God didn't send the rain, they didn't have food. And so there was this thankfulness around water. And one of the main traditions in the Feast of Booths is that every day the priests take these gold vessels and they walk down to the pool of Shiloh. And all along the way, the people gather, thousands and thousands of people gather along the roads. And they begin to, to shout and cry out thankfulness to God. And they would actually sing, in the, they'd sing Psalm 113 to 118. You can go and read this. And then this was the one line that they chanted again and again from Isaiah 12 verse 3. Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And again and again the people would proclaim that over these seven days. So Jesus is not going to this feast. So he tells his brothers. But then once his brothers have gone up, Jesus disguises himself. Isn't that cool? We never think about Jesus like this, but he, he disguises himself in some way that the people don't know that it's him. So he goes up in hiding, and for days he, he walks among the people, and, and he's, no one knows that he's there. And then on the last day of this feast, the crowning day, the, the closing ceremony of the Olympic Games, if you would, on the big day, the eighth day, what they would do is that they would still go down and they would get water from the pool of Shiloh, the priest, the same pattern. But then they would come up and around this altar, they would go around this altar seven times. Where do you think that comes from? Jericho. And Jericho was the entrance into the promised land. They'd been in the desert for 40 years and now finally God was breaking open the promised land. And they walked around Jericho for seven days and it fell and they had access into the promised land. And they would walk around the altar seven times. And then at the end of the seventh time, the priests would all pour this water out. And as they poured out the water, there'd be a great cry and a great celebration and a great shout. And the feast was over. And in that moment, the water, the altar, the people praying Isaiah, chanting Isaiah, draw from the, the water, the wells of salvation. It says Jesus stood up. He's been there in disguise. No one knows it's him. 
Jesus stood up and with a loud voice, the theologians call this the day that Jesus shouted. This is what he shouted. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You doing your ceremony here around the water, you think this is all, this is your, your pool of Shiloh and you're going to pour your water on. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then it says, now this he said about the Holy Spirit who had not yet come. And so it continues. So this is the context, and that's not the verse I'm preaching on, but it's just, it's so profound, it's so beautiful when we understand some of what's going on in these, in these moments. But we're going to pick up in verse 40 of chapter 7. When they heard these words, Jesus crying out about the water, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. But others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. So they sent them to go and arrest Jesus, which is the part you've missed. They sent these officers to go and bring Jesus to them. Why did you not bring him? The officers answered. No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? We the important guys, we the guys who know what's going on, none of us believe in him. What's wrong with you? Go and arrest him. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed, these religious leaders say. Nicodemus, you'll remember good old Nicodemus from John chapter 3, was the Pharisee who went to Jesus by night, too ashamed to go in the daylight hours, and said, tell me, tell me how to be saved. And something of what Jesus has shared is bubbling in Nicodemus' heart. And he says, "Who?" Nicodemus says, does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And then they bully him and they reply, are you from Galilee too? Search and see. Look at the scriptures they say and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Remember they living in booths and he's there among the trees. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. I remember the setting. Jesus already was in Galilee because they're trying to kill him for some previous things that he said. He comes back up in disguise. They're now trying to kill him even more. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, just in case it wasn't obvious. That they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you, 
be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you unpack it in our hearts for us? Would you show us who we are in some of these stories as we read another text out of the Gospel of Matthew just now? Father, would you speak powerfully into our hearts? Lord, we do not search for the acquisition of knowledge We do not want to understand only. We want to understand so that our lives are practically changed, so that the way we live is changed. So would you come and work in our ears and our minds and our hearts and let these things drop deep into our souls. Can you imagine the drama of this moment, the intensity of this moment? You have this, I want you to picture the, I want you to picture the scene. There's this woman whose life is literally hanging in the balance. She didn't come willingly to this crowd of people, this crowd of strangers. She was dragged in. She'd been caught in the act of adultery. She's anticipating a terrifying and painful death by stoning. She knows what it is she's there for. Can you imagine being dragged in front of a huge crowd of strangers and placed in their midst and your greatest shame being revealed? What's the deep secret of your heart? What's the thing you'd hate more than anything for anyone in the world to know? She's completely stripped of dignity. Standing before the most powerful religious leaders of the day. Standing before Jesus the prophet. No more secrecy. No one supporting her. A guilty pawn in the game of the Pharisees trying to catch Jesus out. I want you to think of Jesus whose life they're seeking. They're actively seeking to kill Jesus and he knows it. And he knows that his answer is a powerful place for them to to unleash this, this angst against him. And then we have the Pharisees determined to discredit Jesus. They stand there and they call him teacher in some kind of mocking way, pretending that they've come to him to learn from him. While their hearts are a million miles away from Jesus being teacher. They come to kill him, and and wave after wave, we see in the Gospels these tests that come before him. And if Jesus pleads mercy for this woman, if he answers and says, mercy, have mercy on him, they cry out, lawbreaker, blasphemer. And Jesus is stuck. But if Jesus doesn't plead mercy for her, if if he condemns this woman, then he undermines the entire fabric of this new message that he's been bringing. And then they cry out, fraud! You're a fraud! See, Jesus has been teaching. If you go back and look in in John, you'll know this. John 3.16 and 17, one of the most famous passages of all, all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now listen to the part we neglect, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Jesus, this is your new message. What are you going to do? And the Pharisees, ha ha, we've got him now. We've caught him now. He can't get out of this. He can't turn this way. He can't turn that way. What's he going to do? And Jesus bends down. I would have loved to have seen what he wrote on the ground. Wouldn't you have loved? It's the mystery of the story. What did you write on the ground, Jesus? And with his finger, he begins to write in the dust. He begins to write on the ground. But the Pharisees won't let it go. They keep heckling him. Come on, Jesus, what should we do with him? They're goading the Messiah. They're testing the righteous Son of God. The, the scene is this humiliated woman weeping and, and terrified. The crowd hanging on every word. And then Jesus slowly stands up and he looks around at everything going on allow me some poetic license i know it doesn't say this and he says these deeply insightful and disconcerting words which in an instant lay bare the human condition let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her And Jesus knows that the human condition, Paul's going to write about this later, isn't he, in Romans chapter 3, where he writes and says, all have sinned, all have sinned and fall, fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus puts his finger on the human condition as his test. And he says, if you don't, if you haven't sinned, then you throw a stone. It's the same human condition that I know that when, when you lie on, bed, in your, on your bed at night or when you drive in your car, when you think about your own life, it testifies against you. It testifies against me. My sin. This is what I love about this story. In, in an instant, in that moment, the humiliators... The ones who have been humiliating this woman become the humiliated as one by one they must walk out confessing publicly their own sin. That's the only way they can do it. There's the same crowd of strangers. There's this humiliated woman caught in obvious sin. And Jesus says, well, Pharisees, have you not sinned? And by walking away, they have to say, yes, Lord, we have. Yes, we have. And so they become humiliated in front of this crowd to whom they are the leaders. The same crowd who just the day before, they mocked the soldiers saying, but this crowd does not know, that does not know the law is accursed. You with me? And then Jesus says these words, which beautiful words, which have echoed through the ages. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Last week, Ollie spoke about one of the blood issues. We're using this metaphor of blood, pen, and pencil. Issues of blood as a church. We're obviously speaking about our DNA. We're not just going to speak about grace this morning. We're also going to speak about how this applies into our community, why this matters in our DNA. If you're thinking about joining this church, these are big questions you need to ask. And so the blood issues are issues that we hold tight to. There's the obvious one. There's the salvation issues. And we're not going to let them, them go. And then there's other issues that over the weeks to come, we'll speak about and we'll say, these are the issues you need to hold if you're going to partner with us. Then there's issues which are pain issues. 
issues. These are not for us salvation issues. I'll give you an example. Women elders. We don't believe that women ought to be elders according to the word of God. I know that's controversial. I'm just going to throw it out there and leave it there for a few weeks and you can stew on that, all right? But if another congregation believes that women can be elders, we don't, we don't think they're heretics. We don't think we're not going to see them in heaven. It's not a blood issue. It's a pen issue for us. We feel it's clearly laid out in Scripture and we're going to hold to it. And then there's other issues which are pencil issues. And these issues are, are issues where I think of Paul writing and he says, Brothers, don't have foolish controversies among you. Don't, don't argue about silly things. One of you is a vegetarian. One of you wants to eat meat. That's fine. That's not a big issue today. In his day, that was a big thing. One of you wants to take your kids to karate. The other one thinks it's from the devil. That's fine. That's a pencil issue. All right? It's not actually, even though some people want to put it in the essentials box, it's not actually in the essentials box. It's all right. And we can have a clean conscience before God. So that's one of the metaphors that we're using. The other one is this little phrase which comes from the Moravians. In the, you, should be, you should know this already now, right? We're on week, we're on week five. I'm, I've been asking you guys to learn this. It's so powerful. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all else, charity or grace or love. You could substitute any of those words. In fact, in the Moravian thing, there's, there's, in the historic records, there's, a, there's both of those words used. Sometimes they use charity, sometimes they use love. But an essential is something that we cannot waver on. And so last week, Ollie spoke so powerfully into one of the solas. If you, if you know your, your five solas which came out of the Reformation, sola fide, salvation by faith alone. It is not our works that save us. We don't bring something to the table and believe that in some way we need to help God. Here, Lord, look what I bring to the table. Look at my works. Look at the way I treat my wife. Now you can forgive me. There's a beautiful little gospel in a nutshell, if you would. I love this little, this little three lines. It goes like this. It says, we lost it all. He paid it all. We get it all. We lost it all. He paid it all. We get it all. You see, I don't think that many of us believe that. I think that a lot of us believe that we lost some of it. Paul, aren't we all intrinsically good? Don't we have some little bit of good in us? Do we really lose everything? Does God? I'm not the adulterous woman. I haven't done that. I didn't lose it all. I had a friend. He was a drug. He, he took drugs. He did this. He, was he lost it all. I grew up in a Christian home. I just lost some. I stole a cookie the one time. I know I've sinned, you know, Romans 3. I, I know that. But. And then if you believe that, if you believe that you, that you didn't lose it all, that you just lost some of it, then what do you have to believe about Jesus? He couldn't have paid it all. Well, he paid some. And then you can't believe that we get it all. You, you have to believe that you get some of it. And I, I'm not preaching on this, so I'm just... Throwing it out there, but this is not the true gospel. It's not the true gospel that, that we get some of it, that he paid some of it, that, that we get some of it, we lost some of it, we paid some of it, we get some of it. You with me? And today we turn to another solo, and, and these two are almost inseparable, so close is their relationship to one another. Sola gracia, I don't know quite how to say that. If I say it like in South African, it's like gratia. Sola gratia, gracia. Salvation by grace alone. Ephesians 2 shows the relationship, these two, how closely linked they are when, when the writer says for verse 8, chapter, chapter 2 verse 8 in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Do you see how they work together? 
By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That's what grace is, the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one can boast. And then it carries straight on as if, as if it's, there's no contradiction. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. Hang on, Paul, haven't you just said that we don't? Salvation by grace through faith alone? Yes. But we prepared for good works? Yes. Because faith does not remain alone. And we'll get to that at some point in the next 10 years. We'll keep speaking about that over and over. So faith alone is that we rest our assurance on nothing else. You know the beautiful hymn, In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. He is my light, my strength, my song, his cornerstone, my solid ground. You alone, God. No works, none of my righteousness, none of my having quiet times regularly, none of my prayer life, none of listening to sermons again and again, none of downloading every single One Hope sermon and listening to it three times. None of that is anything. Let's get into grace. Grace alone. I want to give you two angles on what grace means. Grace means receiving, receiving what we do not deserve. And grace means not receiving what we do deserve. Those are the two angles of grace. Receiving what we do not deserve or not receiving what we do deserve. And so this passage, let's go back into John 8. This passage demonstrates so beautifully this, these aspects of grace alone. Receiving what we do not deserve, you see, because both aspects of grace here are so beautifully on display. What did this woman deserve? According to the law of Moses, what did this woman deserve? Death. Stoning. And so in this passage, we see that she does not receive what she does deserve. But then we also see that she receives what she doesn't deserve. It doesn't just stop at Jesus saying, oh, you're so lucky. You escaped death. Run for your life. Run, woman, run before they come back. You got away from death. Run for all your life. You're so lucky they didn't kill you, hey? No, Jesus doesn't just say, you got away with it. You deserve this and you didn't get what you deserved. He then says, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. Woman, have they, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? There's none of them left, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And he gives her this precious gift. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't this gospel Beautiful. It's, it's incredible for me. Guys, there's, there's some of you who are, who are sitting here this morning, and some of you are already walking in this. Praise the name of Jesus. That some of us walk in the freedom of the grace and, and of not feeling like we've got to put expectations on one another, and we're going to get there in a moment. But Jesus stood up and said to her, neither do I condemn you. And so the first thing we look at out of this text is that there's these two aspects of grace so beautifully on display. The second one we think about is that we must think about our restoration to God. This vertical relationship is the place where grace begins. 
Grace begins with God. If you go home and you try really, 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 really hard to be really, really, really nice to your wife and your children or the people who work for you or your friends, and you just try harder and you put something reminder on your phone, those might be helpful things, but that is not where it starts. Grace starts in understanding that we are forgiven, the vertical relationship. It's the restoration of that vertical relationship. Christ sets us free. Who are you in the story? Who are you in the story of John 8? We are all the adulterous woman. All have sinned. Do you know who else we are in the story? We are the Pharisees. We're the Pharisees. We might not be trying to catch Jesus out, but we're, we're baying for blood. We're blind to our own sins while our hands are itching to throw stones at others. Itching. I've been watching with interest what's going on in our, in our country. And there's an eagerness for bloodshed. How, 700 or something thousand people so far have signed the petition to bring back the death penalty. We want blood! Kill them! Have you seen the hashtag, men are trash? Men are trash! Our, our road passes, and I saw the hashtag men are trash. Hang your head in shame if you're a man. I thought, this is not the gospel. Is this how God looks at us? Is this how God looks at us? Looks over and says, men, you're trash. And I want to applaud the movement. And I want to pray and ask God to bring change in our society. I want to, I want to cry out for men to step up. In the failings that we have. And to own those things. I want us to be, when we hear about a protest, at the protest. If we know about it. we the guys who should be to doing these things. But some of the conclusions being reached are so far away from the gospel that it's frightening. And so God doesn't look and say, hashtag, men are trash. Do you know what he says? You're all trash. Hashtag. That's what God says. That's what Romans 3 is talking about. You're all trash. But, but, I've made a way for you. But you're forgiven. You're the adulterous woman. But I say to you, I say to you, Jesus says, you are not condemned. Neither do I condemn you. And we need to see that. We need to see that it starts with the vertical relationship to our Father. The vertical relationship. Third, I already mentioned this. We may wonder what Jesus wrote with his finger. The truth is that we don't know. I wish we did. One day we will. But what we do know is this. We know that Jesus' accusers are insistently interrogating him and Jesus bows down and begins to write with his finger on the ground. And I want you to think of another time when God, remember Jesus is God, took his finger and began to write on an earthly substance. When was it? The Ten Commandments. When God's finger began to write on that Mount Sinai for Moses on a stone, began to write out how he wanted his people to live. And St. Augustine notes that this gesture of Christ going down and writing on the ground, portrays Christ as the divine legislator. Thus, Jesus is the legislator, says St. Augustine. He is justice in person. And he sits down and he writes something about the law or about grace. Maybe he wrote out John three sixteen and 17. 
The fourth thing I want you to see from this passage is that this is not some cheap grace. Do you know what I mean by the phrase cheap grace? I'm going to live like I want. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to get drunk whenever I want. I'm going to sleep with whoever I want. I'm going to do anything and everything I feel like doing because I have a God who loves me so much. I'm going to come and I'm going to stand in church and I'm going to lift my hands and I'm going to sing, Oh, He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. Which is a good song. And it's very meaningful. He's a good, good father. It's who you are, and it is exactly who God is. But we don't come to him without any awe and without any reverence and saying, God, I'm not even going to change my heart because you're just so full of grace and love that it's okay. I can just live like I want. And the world watches on Christians, and they laugh at us. Hypocrites. See, this, this is not some cheap grace. This is not a message of tolerance. Oh, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay, they caught you in adultery. Don't worry. We, just, we tolerate everyone here. We're just going to tolerate everything you do. This is not some cheap grace. This is not tolerance. This is grace and obligation. But it's not any kind of obligation like law. It's grace-fueled obligation. Look at what Jesus says to the woman. Neither do I condemn you. Grace, grace, grace. Condemnation is a judicial word. It's a law word, right? Condemned. You're condemned to prison. You're condemned to death. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. What is that? Justification. Just, I, I remember justification like this. Just as if it never happened. Justification. Just as if it never happened. But then there's this other aspect where there's this grace-fueled obligation. And what does Jesus say to the woman? Go and sin no more. No, 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 it's okay. We're all sinners. Go and sin no more. What's that? Sanctification. Justification. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. God, we're learning. Lord, I'm so riddled through with sin. It's like those worms that eat the wood. But I'm learning. I'm going to keep bringing myself before you again and again and again, and so these are the, the primary things that I wanted to pull out of John 8 this morning. Grace restores our relationship to the Father. We receive what we don't deserve. And we don't receive what we do deserve. I wanted to remind us that Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is justice in person. Even with these things going on in our country, we appeal to our courts. We appeal to our policemen. We appeal to all sorts of things that can make change here and now, but ultimately we appeal to the judge who is even prepared to forgive the perpetrators. Hashtag you all trash. All of us, just like them. We realize that this is not cheap grace. Oops, Lord, I did it again. But, and this is where it comes to our DNA, grace doesn't just stay vertical. When we are forgiven, it doesn't just stay there. And we sit in our, in our armchair and we have our devotions, which is a good thing, and we have our coffee. And we just thank God over and over again for how gracious He's been to us. And then we go out and we're an idiot to everybody around us. 
That's not the way this, this works. See, what has happened to us, this itching of our hands to throw stones, instead we find that our hearts are searching for ways that we can bring grace and administer grace into our families. We want to administer grace into our church community. We want to administer grace to those who are around us who are hurting us. Grace begins to fill every part of our lives. Turn with me to Matthew 18. It won't be too much longer. This is the very famous text. If you know Matthew 18, it, it lays out a biblical way to deal with offense. And at some point in this DNA series, we're going to speak about this as well. Do you know that the Bible actually lays out how you're supposed to deal with one another when you, when you sin and when you offend each other and when there's broken relationships? And FYI, it's not Facebook. It's not there's biblical ways that we are supposed to do this. But that's not what we're talking about today. But that's the focus. That so Jesus is teaching them how to deal with offenses. And then there's this guy, Peter. And we all love Peter because I think, I think we see so much of ourselves in Peter's brashness and his, his kind of trying to get away with stuff. And so Peter gets to thinking about this. He gets to thinking about how we're supposed to forgive one another. And he gets to thinking about what I wonder how often it is that we're supposed to forgive one another. What if this, this guy keeps on doing the same thing to me again and again and again? How often am I supposed to forgive him? And so Peter comes and he says, this is in verse 21 of Matthew 18. Peter came up to him and said, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? <laughs> I think he thinks he's being incredibly gracious in this moment. I look at, guys, you heard it here first. You heard, Peter, you heard it here first. Well, I'm going to forgive seven times. The same thing. He, he's, done it, yeah, he's done it to me seven times. I forgave him. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Other texts say 70 times, seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Do you know what that is? 365 tons of silver. Tons of silver. Billions of rand is what this servant owed his master. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii is about one day's wage. So if you take it as 200 rand, 100 of them, 20,000 rand, after he's been forgiven billions. 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, exactly as he had pleaded with his master. Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Why 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master, this is the king, summoned him, the first servant, and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother or sister from the heart. So when you notice a few things in this passage, I'm only going to mention a very few. 77 times is a way of saying infinity. So when Jesus says, this is how many times I want you to forgive one another, it's infinity. You don't actually have to keep like an actual record and tick off 77 times. And the 10,000 talents, I've already told you, I think it's 365 tons of silver. What you need to know there, it's large. It's large. And then the 100 denarii, this 100 days of labor, is tiny in comparison. It's minuscule. It's not even worth mentioning. I want you to notice that the first king, what did he ask the king for? Give me some more time. Be patient with me. What's that called? That's called mercy. See, mercy is when Jono kills Kevin, and Jono is going to be killed for it. And then Jono's mom, who I wouldn't want to mess with, I don't know her, Jono's mom comes to the government and pleads for mercy. She doesn't plead that he gets set off completely, just please don't kill him. Send him to prison. I plead for mercy. So mercy is when something of our, of our debt is reduced. We get prison instead of death. But what does the king grant him? He doesn't grant him mercy. He grants him grace. He doesn't say, okay, I'll give you 10 more years. Pay it when you can. Justification. Just as if it never happened. Done. Your debt is written off. Grace. What does the second servant ask of the first servant? It gets all confusing with all these servants. What does the second servant say? Mercy. And what does the first servant give him? Nothing. He won't even give him mercy, let alone grace. Friends, I want to contend in closing that it's when we forget what God has done for us. When we forget the largeness of the debt. Maybe you're a believer here today. Maybe you've never even seen how big the debt is. Maybe you think you're the guy that I was talking about right in the beginning, but I grew up in a Christian home. I never killed anybody. Yeah, oh, I cheated on my tax return once, but then you know I paid it the next year because I felt bad. I get a few speeding fines. Maybe some of us have never seen the largeness of the debt that we owe to God. And when we forget what God has done for us, then we begin to hold our brothers and sisters to account for the small debt they have incurred against us. want to choke them how dare you how dare you pay me everything you owe me 
when we forget the vertical forgiveness, our horizontal relationships become graceless. High expectations on everybody around us. Everyone is terrified. They're stepping on eggshells around you all the time, lest you explode, Father. The impatience that comes in our hearts. Paul, you don't understand, Paul. The debt that's paid to me, the, the, the thing that's happened, Paul, is not small. Paul, I was raped. Paul, I was molested. Paul, someone killed someone that I love. These are not small things, Paul. Friends, I want, to, I want to commend you from the Word of God that we just have not seen how large was the debt that we have been forgiven. I don't mean to minimize any pain. I don't mean to minimize anything of what you've gone through, but it's 100 denarii compared to the 10,000 silver things. High expectations, double standards. Do you know what the irony is with people like me who struggle with high expectations of those around them? The irony is that most of those standards, when I'm honest before God, I don't even keep myself. I want to hold you to an account that I won't even keep. I want to weigh you on a scale that's different to the scale that you want to weigh me on. So I'm on this scale, and you're saying, well, I, I put you on this scale, and I say, well, Nathan, I'm going to hold you to this, and I want you to be like this, and, and why don't you, and, and on all these other questions that you can ask, and then when you want to ask the same question of me, I say, oh, no, 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 I'm on this scale. This scale's much nicer. This scale says Paul's great. His expectations are just good. You know, It's good to have high expectations, Right? You know, that lifts the workplace, lifts the, you with me? Double standards. We begin to be ungracious, harboring resentment and anger and bitterness. Now, why is this so important to our DNA? Guys, because some of you have got this and some of you haven't and some of you know Jesus and some of you don't, but this is the culture that we are longing to see. A culture where we don't sit and hold up scoreboards for the music team. Five. Didn't choose my favorite song. Had the drums today. Three. Didn't have the drums today. One. See, DNA is not, is not theoretical. It's not, a, it's not a signed piece of paper that says, okay, I agree with your doctrines. That's important. But that's not the heart of what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, God, what is the community that you want us to be? What is the gospel that you want us to hold on to? And this is the gospel. This is exactly what it is. Father, make us so aware of the grace that we have in you that that grace begins to flow to one another. And then who doesn't want to come to church? Who doesn't want to come when there's people who instead of piling on expectations are saying, you know what, that's not a godly expectation. That's not a godly expectation. Be free, be free, be free in the name of Jesus. I want to go to that church. I want to go to that prayer meeting. See, when we get salvation by grace through faith alone, it forever changes us. We're free. We're grateful. We're released of the workload. There's two areas where we critically need grace. Are you still with me? Are you okay? I know I'm speaking long today. Do you want to stand up quickly? Stand up quickly. Some of you want to stand up. Stand up quickly. Shake yourselves around. Do a star jump. I don't normally talk this long. I'm sorry.
There's two areas where we desperately need grace. The one is unity. Do you know that we desperately need grace for unity? Not just unity here among us, unity among the other churches. Unity in all sorts of different ways that we need and we speak about so frequently here because it's such a a thing that we're so passionate about. How do we work with other churches? How do we work with one another? Do you know how we work with one another? We have grace. We look at some of the things and we think, man, I don't agree with that, but to hang with that, let's walk together. Like Ollie spoke so beautifully last week, we don't draw these false battle lines around every single issue. Or if you don't believe exactly what I believe, we can't walk together. No, grace. I can walk with you when you have different thoughts and and you think different doctrinal things. I can walk with you. Obviously not when we deny the gospel. There's, There's a point that that goes to, but it takes grace. I want, to, I want to encourage you that unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is a cult. When you see people who all start to dress the same, talk the same, have the same language, all start to put the same expectations on one another, it's a cult. Run for your life. Unity is not uniformity. It's grace to walk with one another in our differences. And the second thing, why we need grace, is the complete opposite. Because God has created incredible variety. Have you noticed when you walk outside that there's not one leaf that looks the same as the other leaf? In fact, there's not really one tree that looks exactly the same. Have you noticed how every fingerprint is different? Have you noticed how God gives different gifts to the church? Imagine if we were all preachers and everyone stood up to preach on a Sunday morning. What a mess that would be. Imagine if we were all worship leaders all chair setter outers, all tea servers, all people who God had called into the workplaces as Gerard as a doctor administering grace and love to people in a surgery day after day, a housewife at home caring for her children, doing what God has called her to do, an executive sitting on a, on a CEO board meeting, lifting his hand and saying, no, we're going to do this in a godly way. Isn't it incredible how, how, how various God has made us, how differently he's called us? And this is why we need grace. Because I want to make you like me. It's much easier. Let's all do it like my family. Let's all do it this way. It's not the, the best way to do it. It's the only way to do it. My mom cooked like this. You should cook like this. But God, in his grace, has made us incredibly various. Variety. Think of his Corinthians, the body of Christ. The hand should not say to the foot, I have no need of you, or say to the eye, or say to the heart, or say to the unmentionable parts of the body. We need all these things, it says in Corinthians. Don't you love that in Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter on faith, there's not one repetition of what God called those men and women to do. You can go and walk around your house seven times, it's not going to fall down. You can take your cloak and smack the water as many times as you, it's not going to part for you. Every time God asks people to do different things, variety, not cookie cutter, not uniformity, I think I must be done. If you're here today and you don't know this God, you don't know who it is that I am speaking about. You don't know this condemnation-free Jesus who looked at this adulterous woman and said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want to tell you that he's waiting for you. 
I want to tell you that he knows you. He knows that when you lie on your bed at night and you, in honesty, finally admit, I am them, Lord. I'm the adulterous woman. I'm the Pharisee. I'm them, Lord. And, and we recognize that moment that, that he will stand up and say, neither do I condemn you. Whatever, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Some of us, we know him already. Christians, Christ followers, whatever you want to call us. But there's something in our heart that's graceless, that's always exacting, always wants our pound of flesh, always wants you to work your way back into the friendship circle when you did something wrong. Now you've got to work and work and work to get back into. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Have you forgotten the great debt that was paid for you? Have you forgotten the great debt? Are you choking those around you while at the same time praising God for setting you free? I want to encourage you, this should not be. Guys, there's, there's evidence of this beautifully in our congregation. Incredible grace. I think of the, the testimony recently from Gordon and Helena, whose mother was tragically murdered in Worcester. And how they're able to stand up four years later and speak through the pain of what God has done. No bitterness, no anger. In fact, quite the opposite. They've started this incredible foundation that we went to the launch of recently where they're putting back into communities. We should be encouraged. There's those of us around you that you can look to who are already walking in this, already living grace-filled lives, taking expectations off one another. We're going to take communion. I think there's some guys that are organized that are going to come and take it through. Wow, you guys all sat together. Oh, there we go. There's the two rebels. Neil and Tom rebelling in the middle there. But while we come to take communion, I want to tell you one more thing about John chapter 7. Chapter 8, actually. I want to ask you a question. If you'd been in the crowd that day, don't let the communion distract you. Let it go around. But this is really vital. Listen to this. If you had been in the crowd that day, could you have picked up a stone and thrown it at that adulterous woman? I want to ask you this. Would you have been tempted? Maybe not in that scenario with the adulterous woman, but what about the person who's hurt you more than anyone else in the whole world? What about that person? If you could have that person standing right in front of you, the business partner who took your money and, and left you to have a, a, a penniless retirement, the person who did some terrible ill about you, if you could pick up a stone and throw it at that person, would you? I want to remind you of the words of Jesus. Listen to this. Let him who has not sinned cast the first stone. Can I ask you a question? Who was the person who could throw the first stone? Who was it? Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible that Jesus gave a test which he could fulfill when Jesus said, let him who has not sinned throw the first stone. Jesus could legitimately have bent down and picked up a stone and hurled it at the adulterous woman and picked up another one and hurled it at her until she was dead. 
Jesus, the spotless lamb, the one who was tempted in every way and yet was without sin, gave a test that he could fulfill. So that's why he stands and he says, have, have all your accusers left you? And she says, yes, Lord. And in his heart, I think he was saying, yes, they had to, didn't they? They had to. And then he says, but I don't have to. I don't have to. I can condemn you. I am the sinless, spotless one. I am the one who has not sinned and could throw the first stone. But instead he says, then woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then I want you to think about that Savior, that Jesus who never sinned, who went and did this for us. The reason we take communion, Christ followers, is because that Jesus who would not condemn that woman himself, sinless, perfect, stood and said, I will be condemned in their place. Condemn me, God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus was condemned so that we could go and sin no more. Isn't that beautiful? Man, this gospel is, this gospel is something to write to your mom about. This gospel is something to write home about. It's incredible. This is not some easy religion. This is not some easy, cheap thing. It's hard to love like this. It's hard to have grace like this. It's much easier to just hate people who hate you. Jesus, in your name, we come to you, thanking you from the bottom of our heart for what you have done. Thanking you that you've shown us that we too can go and sin no more because you have not condemned us. As we remind ourselves this morning and we take bread which symbolizes your body. Condemned for us that you would declare us just. Justified. Your blood poured out for us. The sign of life. The sign of vitality poured out that we could live when we were the woman caught in adultery who should have been stoned instead you gave your blood you gave your life blood that we could live thank you thank you god